What does motion sound like? With Kizik Hands Free Shoes, it sounds a little something like this. Experience the magic of motion. Get a free pair of socks with your first order at kizik.com slash socks. Hi, and welcome back to Foreign Office. I'm Michael Weiss, Director of Special Investigations at the Free Russia Foundation. This week, and probably for the next several weeks, we're devoting the show to discussing the Russian manufactured crisis in Ukraine. Uh, today, I'm joined by two colleagues and friends, Vladislav Davidson, who is in Kiev as we speak, and Peter Pomerantsev, who is a historian and scholar specializing in information warfare and propaganda. Hello to you both. It's good to have both of you on at the same time. Um, I would say this is going to be a fun exercise, but given the circumstances, there's nothing really fun about any of it. Vlad, I want to start with you. Um, what's what's the mood in Kiev right now? Hi, Mike. Thanks for having me back. I really like both of you and I like both of your work. And this is really great to be the three of us together. Uh, Peter, of course, wrote the preface to my first book from uh, Odessa with Love. So I am uh, quite grateful to be on with him and have a conversation, our first conversation, in fact, uh, in, in the public space anywhere, since he wrote the preface to my book about uh, the Ukrainian culture war and culture politics and uh, everything that's happened since 2014. So what's it like to be in Kiev now? You know, I say this a lot, it's hard to gauge whether the Omicron epidemic, which is just cutting and gutting the population here is the reason that there's kind of a depressed vibe in the city or the fact that a lot of people went to their daches or second homes or left for Lviv. A lot of people are pessimistic, but just even more people, maybe two thirds are completely stoic to the level of delusional ignorance of the facts. I think two thirds of the population of Kiev where I'm sitting now are just ignoring it saying there's not going to be any war. And, you know, I've just got off the phone with somebody from Ukrainian military intelligence who I've been I've been picking his brain for pretty much every week in the last three months. And it's gone from keep calm, carry on, nothing to see here, or, you know, the Americans are perhaps uh, getting ahead of their skis to now. Well, look, I mean, the, the lower order priority or the lower order estimate of an invasion plan now seems to be slightly higher order. So the, the, the argument is, the majority of our forces are in the east uh, near the contact line and obviously things are kicking off there you know you've got a series of false flag operations or so say the americans including the explosion of a, a gas pipeline a car bombing in the the heart of the so-called donetsk people's republic all of these things being debunked almost as quickly as they happen but clearly this is the causus belli that the americans warned everyone about for a, a possible russian invasion and now the fear is Lukashenko said yesterday that if things come to some kind of you know, kinetic level between uh, Russia and Ukraine, Belarus will, of course, support its Russian ally. The Russian uh, general staff announced that they're not withdrawing their forces from Belarus after the conclusion of military exercises today. So the real fear now is, well, while everyone's looking at Donbass, what if there is an attack on Kyiv? And I keep hearing the, the Yugoslavian scenario or the Kosovo scenario of kind of a merciless bombardment from the air using standoff systems, rockets, whatever, and then essentially waiting to see if that achieves the objective of regime change. If Zelensky resigns or if he basically caves to some as yet determined form of Minsk 3.0, right? Peter, you kind of have analyzed the messaging coming from, I guess, all sides in this crisis. Tell me what you think is different this time around from 2014 
I mean, you and I wrote the paper, The Menace of Unreality in 2014. That was largely about disinformation and propaganda all to do with Ukraine. And indeed, I mean, I'm seeing today, you know, they're, they're kind of re-upping the oldies of fake news, you know, the, the crucifixion of the toddler, or is it a six-year-old or seven-year-old? That story has now been resurfaced uh, in, in Russian telegram channels. It doesn't seem like the, the Russians have got more artful or sophisticated in their methods of planting stories, but it does seem like the U.S. has become more aggressive in pushing back at this stuff. Indeed, even before it happens, I mean, this whole let's leak all of our intelligence in order to deter Putin or at least make him blink or, or reformulate his plans. What do you make of this strategy? Has it succeeded? Has it failed? Is it kind of interesting to behold in its own right? Uh, tell us like what your understanding is from, from all sides in the crisis. So that's a really good question, Michael, because clearly the Brits and the Americans have decided to do this sort of sally into the information psychological space by trying to sort of like leak early and reveal some of their intelligence. And, and we can discuss about, you know, what the aims of that are, but it's, it's, it's definitely a sort of a new thing and quite innovative. It's just not an, I mean, I think it's, a, it's an interesting first step really. Yeah. It's not enough to just to do a couple of press conferences and then let the media run with it in ways that are off, actually often very inaccurate and, un, and un, unhelpful. But at least, it's, I suppose, it's half a step forward. Yeah. You know, the discussion we really need to have if we're just going to focus on the informational piece is what is the proper sort of democratic global engagement strategy. I mean, we know what Russia and China do. They're going to be doing a lot more. They're going to be doing it together. And, you know, they, you know, we can call it information war or sharp power or whatever you want to call it. Yeah. And, and this, this crisis now is not going to have like an off-ramp. It's going to have like an, it's an Escher staircase of escalations and invasions and negotiations that's going to go on and on and on and on. I mean, Putin isn't doing this, then stopping and walking off. This is part of a much, much longer game. Right. And how are we going to compete? We just really need to start that conversation. And, and maybe this one side positive effect of the current tragedy is that, is, is that we'll start having that. And what will that mean? I mean, even, you know, we could, we could drill down. What would it mean to do it properly right now? Yeah. Um, right now in the DNR, um, I do a lot of sociology in the occupied territories. And so, so people there in the DNR don't believe they're silly leaders and they can see through the propaganda. You know, they, I mean, I'm in the social media groups as, as, as we're talking and they can tell that the shelling is coming from their side and they don't want to get into these evacuation buses the Russians are providing because they're worried the Russians are going to bomb them and you know, say the Ukrainians did it. So look, they're deeply, and they've always been this way. There's a lot of sociology out there about attitudes there, and, but no one's been talking to these people for, for eight years. I mean, not in a strategic way. Uh, we should have had eight years of communicating with them via you know secure online groups or or finding people from there right. that will go and speak in congress and on voice of america and and in the various sort of western media um we should have been humanizing their experiences and, and making a clear distinction between the perpetrators they're the rulers and the victims and you know this stuff takes time it doesn't happen overnight right but if we had been doing that we'd now be in a position to be able to be talking to them and putting, you know, a lot of uh, making Putin's life a lot more difficult there, but but we haven't. I mean, that's just one tiny example. And and the Russians and the Chinese think about multiple audiences all the time. They're constantly manipulating them. And let's say we, you know, manage to put a wrench in Putin's plans by leaking early, but he can pivot and do another approach. 
you know, because it's supple and can turn on a dime and he can flip on another narrative of one narrative. Thing. So this is this is what concerned me about this strategy. And, you know, I wrote something with Owen Matthews. I saw Keir Giles had something in The Guardian similar way, which is that, look, with all the doom casting coming from the West, uh, rockets raining down on Kiev, they will occupy the entirety of Ukraine, an expansive territory that's something like 220,000 square miles, 44 million people. That, key, that Ukraine as a state will cease to exist. Ukrainians for many months were sort of bridling at this because they felt A, it was causing great harm to their economy. B, it was sowing international panic when yes, you know, the, the signs were not good, but nor were they necessarily indicative of some kind of apocalyptic scheme. And C, and here's the, I think where it comes into the sort of dueling information narratives. What if Russia doesn't invade or what if it does invade, but to a more minimal degree, than what has been prognosticated by the Americans and the British. You already see Russian state propagandists and, and their surrogates in the, in the West basically dunking on the fact that war in 48 hours, uh, you know, headlines like that didn't come to pass. So therefore, you know, it just goes to show, oh, that nefarious deep state, they're, they're getting themselves into a lather, they're warmongering, they're the ones causing this crisis, et cetera, et cetera. And if the goal was deterrence, make Putin stop doing what he's doing or put him on the back foot long enough that we can find a diplomatic solution, well, that doesn't seem to have succeeded, at least according to the president of the United States, who says he is absolutely certain Putin is going to invade. So now you're hearing sort of revisionist takes, well, it wasn't so much about deterrence, it was about rallying allies, but I fail to see how we couldn't have rallied allies by just simply sharing the intelligence with them or waiting for an invasion to happen and then showing them, look, now you guys have to act. Vlad, from your perspective as a Ukrainian and as an American, so you're kind of getting it from both sides. You're seeing sort of the, the superpower trying to rescue this country, but you're also living in this country that on the one hand, as you pointed out earlier, doesn't feel as though it needs rescuing at the moment, but that might be a reflection of naivete or ignorance or simply sort of the, the recourse of the ostrich. Tell me, how do you see this playing out? I mean, you've, you've been monitoring kind of the, the back and forth and the international press as much as Peter and I have. Yeah, thank you. There's so, uh, so much to unpack there. I do see the the Ukrainians saying, oh, okay, well, it's really looking forward, looking like it's moving forward towards the Americans' view that the American narrative, which looked like it was completely histrionic for weeks and weeks and weeks, is now looking like it's coming to fruition. So, uh, you know, everyone who said that this is just the Americans creating alarmism and they're really pessimistic and there's no reason to to uh, think that things are really going to pop off they're getting pie on their face and in fact I'm one of those people I wrote an op I wrote op-eds in the New York Post and and I wrote pieces in foreign policy and, and tablet everywhere I was one of these yep. people crowing that the that the Americans are pushing too hard too fast I would like to be still uh, uh, right I would I would prefer that I was right not, not just because I want to be right but because you know this country to which I've committed my life and where my friends and relatives live and where my wife is from and where her her Ukrainian film projects are based. My entire life is is uh, embedded in this country. I don't even know what I'm going to do as a journalist if, if Putin is successful in destroying the Ukrainian political project as a state. Literally, I don't like I, you know, I'm going to cry. Maybe I don't know. My my personal attachments aside, mm -hmm. the political elite here was just really unhappy about the way that this was proceeding. They were grateful sure. on one hand, and they can't really openly criticize the Americans because you look really bad doing that and you, you undermine the policy and you look ungrateful and you, and you look like a jerk. 
On the other hand, it's really bizarre. The, the, the Ukrainians and the Russians are saying the exact same thing. While the, while the French and the Americans and the British are, are, are yelling about the apocalypse, the Ukrainians and the Russians are saying, no, no, there's no war. There's nothing to be worried about. It's really kind of a bizarre situation. Right. The two, the two combatants are saying there's no combat and everyone else is saying <laughs> it's the end of the world. Yeah, I, I've, I thought about it. It's like, really, Moscow and Kiev keep denying that there's anything happening. It's, the, it's Washington and Berlin who are saying war, the, the sky is falling. So, I mean, Peter, you, you made the point that we've kind of lost a lot of time, eight years to be exact, of trying to at least give the, uh, the, the, the view from inside the occupied territories of Donbass, you know, the people who are really on the front line, the first to be affected. Indeed, they've already been affected with this kind of theatrical stage managed evacuation. If you're living under, you know, DNR, LNR authority, uh, how do you get brought out of there to go, I don't know, give a speech before Congress or appear on VOA without also being targeted by people who have instituted a rather kind of Stalinoid style of authoritarian justice? You know, I mean, isn't there a fear that these people would be rounded up and, and, and killed? I mean, you made the point that many of them were afraid to even get on the bus because they thought the Russians would bomb the bus just to blame the Ukrainians. No, no, that's obviously people who would have recently left and who can like tell what it's about, you know and tell what it's like. Yeah. It would have meant using completely different language when talking about those places. It would have made meant creating sort of TV shows and dramas that sort of like uh, uh, made their experiences relatable, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, obviously there's, you know, you, you, there's many ways to, to get, to address the security concerns. And I just give that as a very small example. I mean, those are the audiences which in, 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 in are the most disempowered because they are living in a, in a kind of a proper mafia state. But I just give that as one small example of the sort of things that's needed. You just need to do a lot more than just give, give, a, you know, give a couple of speeches and a couple of intel briefings. So because simply it's, 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 this is not a, like a, a single moment. This is a whole sort of you know, a long process that's going to go on and on and on and on. And maybe we have deterred Putin from doing this, the plan that we had. I mean, the, the fact is we'll only know this 30 years hence when the archives are open. Yeah. So this is all like sort of like, you know, there's a lot of speculation upon speculation upon speculation. But even if we have done that, and, and maybe we have, by the way, maybe he would have, you know, maybe he would have sacked Kiev if we hadn't started screaming about it beforehand. And maybe we have changed this calculation. That doesn't mean he stops. Then he does something else instead. And you have to adapt to that. I mean, it's not, it's, it's a sort of permanent situation, permanent sort of conflict. This is kind of bizarre for me to say, because again, you know, in 2014, we were talking about the, the failure of the West to even understand the grammar of Russian information warfare and all that. Yeah. And here we are kind of litigating whether or not a Western strategy that is seemingly conform more to some of our proposals back then uh, is going to succeed or fail. And yet, I mean, there's another aspect of all this that I think we have to address, which is what if fundamentally Putin just doesn't give a fuck? You know, what if he doesn't care that his sort of scenery collapsing antics in Donbass are debunked in real time? What if he doesn't care that Tony Blinken, Michael Carpenter, Joe Biden, Jake Sullivan get up and basically, you know, compromise his, his invasion plans weeks or days before they're, they're meant to be implemented? What if he just kind of shrugs his shoulders and say, I'm still doing it because ultimately, no, I'm not accountable to anybody. You know, the Russian people, I, I've been pumping them full of all kinds of bullshit and propaganda that this really isn't a war with Ukraine. This is a war against the United States and NATO. Ukraine is just the, the battle space on which it has to be fought. Um, and, you know, yeah, I mean, Russians don't want war with Ukraine. I mean, if you look at Levada polling, they're, they're quite down on the prospect, but 
is it really going to be, you know, a Bolotna style protest movement in Moscow, anti-war? I mean, you're seeing like a few people bless their hearts in Red Square getting arrested now for protesting what's about to happen. But fundamentally, he feels he can weather the storm. You know, he doesn't think that sanctions, however blocking or sectoral they may be, are going to destroy the Russian economy. He feels like he's got enough of a good thing going with, with China. Belarus is now a wholly owned subsidiary of the Russian Federation. And he's managed to kind of put out various crises through this combination of, forget even just the information warfare level, military technical measures as the new term of art, right? Which isn't just sending in troops, it's intelligence operations, it's diversionary tactics, it's cyber warfare, it's a whole kit and caboodle of, of options. Um, and which is why, by the way, I still think that what might actually happen is going to be, you know, sort of stranger and yet also less devastating than what has been forecasted here. I think it could just be a play for the East. Uh, guns pointed in, in Ukraine, no plausible deniability, occupation of, of LNR and DNR, possibly with annexation of more Donbass and Lugansk, in order to then see, okay, now does Kiev implement Minsk 2.0, or do we even renegotiate the terms more favorable to ourselves? Peter, like if you were in, and I put it to both of you, actually, if you're both in U.S. government now at the, the GEC or the State Department or at the NSC in the White House, what would you be advocating? We do. Or what would you have advocated we should have done in the last three months rather than maybe just ring the alarm bells of something coming? Uh, I guess I'll start. Uh, I, if I was a member of uh, the American government, which uh, is not, not in the office, not very likely with my louch, uh, with my louch lifestyle and my, my multiple passports and my, <laughs> my uh, being born in Central Asia and my uh, 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 youthful, uh, youthful consumption of various substances um, is probably not going to happen outside of this podcast. So let me enjoy this. If I was a member of the United States government, what would I do? Well, I, I would have done things very differently for the last eight months since they had since last August to build an Iron, Iron Dome style anti-missile uh, system. Obviously, you're not going to give the Ukrainians uh, a, an air force. It's, it's just impossible. Yeah. It's just impossible. And just, how are you going to give them an air force? You're going to make them into South Korea in, in, the, space, in the space of six months? You're not. They're, they gave them all the weapons that they could very quickly in the last three months in order to deter mechanized invasion. I'm sure that the Russian general staff has priced in the, the javelins and the man pads and all the Estonian kit that they've been given that is very nice to knock out tanks and destroy counter uh, battery fire and all that. I just don't think that it is enough to uh, deter a invasion from the air. And in order to, yeah. in order to prevent the actual thing that, that really could destroy the Zelensky administration and destroy Kiev, you know, you would have, you would have to spend maybe six months to a year creating anti-air force capacity here and making this country to Israel in terms of its uh, anti-ballistic missile capacity, which we didn't do. If you're very serious about this, I mean, you should have seen this coming a long time ago, which no one did. Um, I mean, clearly the Trump administration didn't do that. And the Biden administration, let's say, had a year to do that. They've been in power for a year. They didn't do that. Peter, let me let me put a scenario to you, and and this is this is perhaps even more provocative than bolstering Ukraine's air defense system. You know, look, you had a host of countries, NATO member states, sending military trainers to Ukraine, which has proceeded, I think, more or less uninterruptedly over the past several years. Now, the goal with this is not just to 
prepare Ukraine for membership in NATO. That, that is not a prospect in, in, that is likely to happen in the short to midterm, and it wouldn't have happened even without this current crisis. However, one of the goals of this is to train Ukraine's armed forces in a NATO style, right? You know, when this was happening in and around the Baltic states prior to their accession to NATO in 20, 2004, it was also a form of deterrence, right? If you've got NATO trainers in country, the Russians are less likely to bomb the country. And one of the arguments I'm, I've been hearing, and you know, this is where you get into this terrain where people hysterically start to shout World War III, is that if, if NATO had simply left those trainers in place, if Biden hadn't sort of you know, forsworn any kind of direct military engagement with Russia right out of the bat and said you know, repeatedly to the press, we have no obligation legally or morally to defend Ukraine ourselves, it might have made Putin blink. It might have been something he would take more seriously than just, oh, yeah, you know, we're going to do sanctions and there's going to be international denunciations of you at the UN and the OSCE. And, you know, we're sending javelins and stingers, which, frankly, you know, you can pretty much handle because you have fixed wing aircraft. What, what, what do you think of that argument as something that, look, facts on the ground matter more than sort of memes in the air or counter narratives or undercutting intelligence by leaking it to the New York Times and the Washington Post? Probably. I mean, Putin, for all the information games that Putin plays, he still very much believes in hard power. So I'm just not an expert on that, Michael. And I don't want to sort of like talk about stuff I don't really know very much about. But without a doubt, you're quite right to say that, you know, we shouldn't get carried away with the whole kind of like you know, information, et cetera, et cetera, piece of this. I mean, that's really much more about, in a sense, that's about Ukraine because they're, you know, they're in this weird war, but it's in a way much more about the rest of the world than Europe where the informational and the political warfare competition is the main one. I really, I really don't know. That You know, there is a whiff of sort of inevitability about all of this because there's an imperial dynamic at work in Russia. Um, we should maybe think about that a bit more. And there is, you know, a group of people at the top who seem to be very motivated by it. Uh, so I, I wonder if really the, the real focus needs to have been much more about how do you how do you think about those people rather than anything sort of inside Ukraine. If, if Putin is committed to, you know, crushing and destroying Ukraine at any cost, then, then he just is. Yeah. Peter, you profiled rather famously Vladislav Surkov uh, in your first book. And I, I thought it was a brilliant profile of a guy who is kind of this weird postmodern phenomenon of somebody who loves the West and loves all that it's ha had to offer culturally. And I guess in that sense has kind of imbibed all of its soft power, but is, is nonetheless committed to countermanding, if not destroying the West. Now, Surkov's currency seems to have taken a bit of a tumble. He's no longer in charge of the Ukraine file. But the guy who's replaced him, who's a deputy chief of staff, uh, according to a report in Rusi, also has a GRU Spetsnaz background. I don't know, know if this guy likes Tupac Shakur and Allen Ginsberg, but you know, let's assume he nonetheless likes to shop at Harrods and you know, possibly send his kids to boarding school in you know, France or Switzerland or whatever. I mean, there, there does seem to be a, a missed trick in all of this, which is that yeah, look, this is not the Soviet Union. It's not a totalitarian regime. And for all of this kind of like oversold argument that Putin is trying to restore the USSR, it doesn't seem like he's doing that. It doesn't seem like he knows that he thinks that he has that in his capability. It's that he wants to restore the lost grandeur of Russia, right? He wants Russia to be taken seriously, you know, I will not be ignored. And, and no one is ignoring him now, right? I mean, he's holding all the cards. 
we're essentially when the when the world's only superpower is saying there's still a path to peace and you know we prevail upon the Russian president to take it and all that. I mean, in a way, you know, we have all big up to Putin. We have all turned him into exactly what he wants to be. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah. Let's let's talk about Moscow a little bit instead of instead of Ukraine. I mean, Ukraine is going through sort of like you know, very, very historically recognisable anti-colonial struggle, which which will end up with Ukraine winning. It's just a question of how long it'll take and how much blood. Let's think about Russia. Yeah. It really is about Russia and not Ukraine in so many ways. If you are one of these tough, elite FSB guys who spent the last 20 years with a really pretty clever, canny strategy to make Russia great again, largely through energy policy. You've invested hugely in NS2 as a way to, you know, pretty much subjugate Germany at a, at a sort of at a sort of an elite level. You've been building up Rosneft to create sort of incredible Russian leverage across, across Europe. You have a really clear vision of how Russia can punch above its weight and be a real superpower. And you're educated, you're clever, you're multilingual, you're hard and cynical, but you're very grounded in the real world. You now have three or four people driving Russia off a cliff, at the end of the day, disempowering Russia, at the end of the day, making it China's bitch, and completely invalidating the work. Putin and his clique are, from that point of view, seditious. They are traitors who are destroying the country. The patriotic act can only be a palace coup. Interesting. So let's talk about who Putin's war party are. You've got uh, Bastrykin who's the head of the SVR, Foreign Intelligence Service, Bortnikov, who's the head of the FSB, so domestic security, Patrushev, arguably the second most powerful man in all of Russia, formerly head of the FSB for about eight years, I think, during the consolidation of power internally in Russia, now the secretary of the National Security Council, and Chemzov, the uh, CEO of Rostek. And these guys basically, according to some very good reporting done in The Economist, in The New York Times, they hate the West. They believe that uh, a confrontation with the United States and with NATO is something they can handle. They do not care anymore about the sort of anti-war, liberal, moderate, softly, softly approach that Moscow has plied or using kind of the, the, the measures that Peter alluded to earlier, kind of state manipulation, if not state capture through energy policy and a consortium of other non-military means. These are all KGB guys. These are all people who are reared in the kind of Andropov school of, you know, there is going to be ultimately a kind of end game to this conflict, meaning the Cold War, and it's going to be some form of war. And in a way, they feel like there's unfinished business here, right? 1989 to 91 was absolutely humiliating for them. Now they're back on top or so they see it and they're just going to plow ahead. So you say, Peter, a palace coup is the only thing that is going to stop this. Vlad, I put it to you. I mean, do you agree with that? Appraisal and also, how would a palace coup at this point in time, given that internal co- consolidation of power by the Siloviki that I mentioned, how would that be carried off? Is that even a remote possibility? I do think that the Putin government is extremely good at counterintelligence, and I'm not sure that you could get enough high-level officers together in a room to even discuss it or in a WhatsApp chat without them being found out. I'm not sure it's possible. I think that he has the loyalty of the regime until he screws up badly enough that that things uh, start moving in a direction where other forces 
allow something to happen which is unpredictable i just don't i just don't see a palace coup happening because he, he is winning at this point i mean he's 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 running the table he's playing very good poker and he if you consider a position that that he's in vis-a-vis american and the european union in 2022 to 2012 it's remarkable it's a different world it's really 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 bad and for us i mean in the west i mean certainly those of us who are americans sitting in kiev I don't see a palace coup situation. I think he has the buy-in of the elites who will take economic hits in my uh, conversations with people who know uh, up to 70%, depending on which business they're in, of their, of their net worth, of their liquidity, of their assets. Uh, and I do think he has the intelligence services on side until he loses. So he, he has the chance to play his hand. And if he wins, he wins. He collects his winnings. If he loses... There'll be uh, some sort of thing. So I don't, I don't agree with my pal Peter that, uh, that that there's a possibility of a palace coup yet until they lose. Another thing, I just want to uh, draw back to what Peter said. It absolutely must be a wonderful feeling for Vladimir Putin to be in the news every day, to have a line mm-hmm. of European officials and presidents and prime ministers flying to see him every single day, taking a nose test, sitting on the other side of a very long table. Why would you not prolong this? This is great. <laughs> Who doesn't want to be the king of the world and have every some, single European foreign policy person from foreign minister to president of France come to Moscow on a weekly basis, sometimes on a daily basis, to, to pay homage to the king uh, as, as, a, as a supplicant? You could keep this going for months and months, the degradation of, of the Ukrainian economy, enjoy the subjugation of all these minor European princelings and prime ministers, enjoy the Americans looking like crazy people saying, the, no, the, 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 it's tomorrow, the day after, no, a week afterward, two weeks, three weeks, you know, you know the 23rd. This is great. Yeah. And Peter, I mean, look, I fully appreciate, and, and I, I think I agree with the assessment of those who say that in Putin's calculation, this is the opportune time now to do something like this, because the West, by his lights, is in terminal decline. It's failed in multiple categories, not least of which every single war it has fought since 2001 has been, shall we say, less than an, an unmixed success. Um, the withdrawal and from Afghanistan was rather ignominious, however you choose to define your policy objectives. Syria, the U.S. line was, oh, the Russians want to have in? Okay, great. You know, best of luck to them. This is going to be a quagmire. This is going to be their Afghanistan 2.0. Quite the opposite. I mean, it succeeded. It propped up Bashar al-Assad and made Putin certainly one of the chief interlocutors for all business concerning the Middle East. And now you've got this kind of cultural morass in the United States and in other parts of Europe. You have a good percentage of the American electorate who think that the president of the United States was not duly elected or who believe that the American government is run by a cabal of um, satanic pedophiles. You've got other people who think, you know, getting a shot in the arm to prevent a plague is a way of Bill Gates microchipping your brain. Um, or as a way to kill you or to precipitate autism in your children. It doesn't seem like the West has got quite as much resiliency, self-confidence and vigor as it might otherwise have. And I mean, I don't know. I mean, do you, do you see this as kind of the, the Brezhnevite view of the West absent the internal chaos 
of Russia. I mean, in other words, you know, there's not stagflation. The Russian economy is doing pretty okay, all things considered. And, you know, Putin, he's a student of history, however revisionist and kind of hysterical he wants to, to spin it. But he understands, look, um, we don't have the Marxist-Leninist ideology anymore, um, but we do need the we, we do need to shore up our power. We do need to ensure that we can weather the storms that our predecessors were simply incapable of weathering. How do you see it, Peter? I mean, how, how does it go? You say that conquering Ukraine would be this kind of colonialist exercise that in the long term would, would backfire and fail. I mean, walk us through sort of, I don't know, your scenarios of, of how this might play and how Putin could be fashioning a rod for his own back. Well, if look, the, the speculation that we all have, yeah, and it's so speculative, and I live in DC, so so these speculations are are really these sort of sadomasochistic, non-stop dinners and and conferences, or speculating like what does Putin want and what's in his head. But very simply, the argument is that he has thrown caution to the wind. He doesn't calculate risk anymore in a sensible way. And he's become a believer in, in ideology, essentially. Yeah, that after having been driven by survival and vengeance, he's now driven by ideas and legacy. And that's a very different Putin to the one we've ever known. But OK, maybe maybe he is. And, and therefore, he'll start making decisions based on ideology. And, and when you make decisions based on ideology and not, and not the facts on the ground, then, then you start making disastrous mistakes. So I agree the palace coup right now is going to be hard, but the moment he starts losing, and this, you know, you talked about our unsuccessful wars that were built on, on rash ideology. Well, he's sort of might be about to launch some now. So, so the palace coup becomes much more, um, much more of a chance. Maybe he hasn't stopped uh, calculating and thinking about risks. And then he's playing a very different game. And then he's playing a game that's going to be much longer and much more subtle and much more needly and won't, you know, step over certain boundaries. We'll see. I mean, if it's the former, then then I think, yes, then I think, you know, then I think there's something of a death spiral implicit in making those sort of bad decisions. The question is only how much, you know, how much blood there is along the way. Uh, change in Russia has always come through palace coups. I mean, that's just how change happens in Russia. It only hasn't happened. Uh, through a palace coup in 1917. So, and that's what, and that's what Putin is, is scared of. You know, when he's talking about his fears and his fears of NATO, that's a way of displacing the only thing a Russian leader really fears, which is, which is the palace coup. Um, you know, that, 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 that's the paranoia built into, into the gloomy light of the Kremlin. So, so maybe he can even smell it. You know, the fact that he's become more paranoid and more jittery means that he feels it's closer and closer and closer to him. So, I mean, if, if you're um, a kind of cynical grand strategist and, and you know, you, you, you wedded to realpolitik, uh, you might have your, your grievances with NATO enlargement in the kind of Mearsheimer way. But um, the argument there would be, OK, go ahead, try to occupy Ukraine. It's going to be your, your grave. And I mean, I don't subscribe to this argument for a host of reasons, not least of which is that a lot of Ukrainians and a lot of Russians are going to die needlessly. But it seems to me that, you know, if, if we're talking about Putin, not the madman, I don't think that's that's quite fair of an appraisal of this kind of shift in his thinking. But Putin, the guy who no longer about kind of shoring things up at home and, and making sure that he's got enough money to retire on or to, you know, that nobody's going to assassinate him. But he's Putin, the guy with the legacy, the one who wants to export his grand vision of the world at the end of a bayonet. 
should we be egging him on to do this? Is there a school of thinking? I, look, I don't, I don't go to the cocktail parties and dinner parties that Peter does in DC, but is there a school of thinking that, that basically says, yeah, this is going to be his Vietnam and uh, except a Vietnam that, 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 that uh, ends with, with regime change in Russia? So, so, Michael, there are no cocktail parties in D.C. There, there, there might be like like sour, horrible morning coffee meetings, but, but that's just about it. And everything's on Zoom anyway. So my point of view is, is very subjective, judging. I, mean, I haven't done like a, a quantitative analysis of what people think. But no, no, everyone. So here's the paradox that I see. Everyone in D.C. thinks this is the end of American power in the West. They think Putin's going to win this fundamentally because they don't take Ukrainians seriously. They think this is a town of sort of defeatist realists, largely. And, and they think, no, 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 they think this, we're about to see a, a, a paradigm shift where, where we're embarrassed and we're humiliated and Putin wins this. There's an outsized actual regard for Putin's brilliance here. And there's a, you know, because these people think in, in systems and moving tanks around maps, they don't think Ukraine, they don't factor in Ukrainians as human beings with agency. Just the, the nature of their discipline, you know, that, that that's what they come from. They do international relations and they don't really think about people. They don't really read literature. They don't understand people. So, so no, no, they think Putin, Putin's going to win this. And, and this is the end of America. Funnily enough, people I speak to in Moscow think this is the end of Russia, that Putin's about to miscalculate horribly and doesn't <laughs> understand the world. Putin's going to... Uh, so you have two kind of elite intellectual cohorts in Moscow and DC convinced that this is the end of their projects. And the only people who are just focused on life are the Ukrainians. And they're the X factor in all of this. They're the ones that don't fit into the sort of like, uh, into the dead hand of international relations theory. And, and they're the kind of like, you know, the strange thing that doesn't, doesn't quite compute in the algorithmic calculations of, of DC analysts. I don't know if these sort of demonic Kissingerian cynics exist. I just see a bunch of realists in DC who are completely convinced that the American century is over. And I and have like Putin, I'd have Putin jealousy, basically. You know, they look up to him. Putin jealousy. I, I'm also glad that I don't go to DC now listening. I mean, I've, I've spent a lot of time in DC now. Having heard uh, what DC is like, this confirms all my uh, priors about what DC is. And it, it actually confirms that I'm correct and not living there. Uh, I live between Paris and Kiev, which is uh, much more charming and much more humane from one to the other, and certainly in both. So much to say about what Peter just said. It is absolutely the case that people in Washington, D.C. do not understand how resilient Ukrainians are, how many of them there are, how many of them are armed, how many of them are even more capable of stomaching pain and being stoic and taking trauma and taking a hit to the gut and getting up and killing uh, uh, and fighting to the death than the Russians are. Uh, you know, a friend of mine, a British friend of mine here, uh, actually a friend from uh, Atlanta Council, Peter Dickinson, he once said to me, the only people who are more resilient and uh, more able to stand up to being the losers of history than Russians are Ukrainians. It is absolutely the fact that this is a very difficult country to break. You can break the political project, the economy, the, uh, the state easily enough if you're Putin. In fact, he probably has to calibrate the amount of force he uses very carefully to not break it and not have all these un uh, unwanted ricochet effects and, you know, tidal, tidal waves of refugees and economic uh, uh, refugees into, into Rostov and problems that he could have uh, in, uh, uh, in his uh, Western provinces, Western oblasts. 
But it is the case that he could break this country very easily in half if he wanted to use enough force. He could do that in the next half hour. If he wanted to just blow up all the right buildings in Kiev, he could break this country in half and uh, then the regions would be on their own without um, corresponding communication strength. And all these guys in the territorial battalions would be on their own and that you'd have basically medieval king uh, statelets which would have to be subjugated by force you could do that tomorrow why would you want to do that if you want to dominate this country and if you want it back on side as part of a resurgent uh russian empire under uh tsar uh, putin the first you don't want that and so to, to answer what uh, P- peter's yeah. uh, accusation of the folk of washington dc not being able to understand the human condition here or not having enough literary context or psychological context, that's absolutely true. 40 million people is a lot. It's about a third or a quarter of the Russian population. They don't have the troops to subjugate this country. They have enough troops on the border to take Odessa or Kharkiv or Mariupol or Kiev or maybe two of the above, but they don't have enough troops to actually integrate Ukraine into the uh, into the Russian federation, even if they wanted to, even if they had the the resources to do it, they don't. So uh, the Ukrainians are resilient. You could break this country in half and then still have uh, only Western Ukraine with 25 million people in it, militarized like Israel or or North Korea, uh, uh, resisting them. But certainly they'll survive, maybe with less territory, maybe with uh, with bigger problems, they'll survive. And one more thing that Peter said that uh, uh, that, that struck me uh, as very intelligent and correct. The thing about the the Russians and their political project, he's been winning since 2015. Why would you stop if you won in Syria, then you resolve the Armenian-Azeri crisis to your advantage, then you put down an uprising revolution, which I covered in Belarus, and now you're essentially almost de jour, now it's de jour, yesterday was de facto, today it's de jour, you know, annexing as a garrison state. Then you have uh, 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 the, the, the Georgians who've more or less, you know, they, they've, they've survived, but they've, the, the political project is mired in kind of stalemate. Uh, you've been winning over and over and over again for the last five years. Uh, that's just five conflicts that I mentioned in the last five years where Putin intervened. And in every single one of those conflicts, he had probably the best kind of outcome that he could have hoped for. So why wouldn't you keep going if you had that kind of a string of victories? No? Yeah, well, that, that's, that's the thing. I mean, he, he, hubris wedded to actual accomplishment is, is, can be a, a very dangerous thing. But that also undercuts the idea that he's fundamentally shifted in his thinking about the world. Um, I, I believe that he believes he can get away with this. Is it really going to be the case that we will cripple Russia's economy well, maybe. I mean, if, if Kiev is sacked or even if rockets rain down on Kiev for you know a week or more, that could kick into gear, sure. But I'm, I'm not entirely sold on this idea of Western solidarity with Ukraine. If the American foreign policy mavens in, in D.C. kind of think that Putin is sort of this grand strategist and, and this, this, this cunning but evil you know, kind of dictator who can do whatever he wants, it, it, it sort of stands to reason that they're probably, you know, they might kind of symbolically say, yeah, we have to do this, that and the other to deter or counter him. But they fundamentally know they're not going to win. And the Europeans, I mean, as I mentioned earlier, the Germans, the French, the Italians, there is not unity here. I mean, there's a show of unity, 
at some level, but a show that is constantly being undercut by statements coming out of, you know, the capitals of these countries. And, you know, one option for him, of course, is you go in, you smash up a bunch of things, and then you withdraw. And you wait to see the Western response. And you wait also, especially to see Zelensky's response. A lot of this has been kind of a probing exercise to test Western resolve. And as you point out, Vlad, in the last five years, that resolve hasn't really done what it's meant to do, right? I mean, especially if you're sitting in in the Kremlin now. But Michael, if that was the the thinking in, and here, by the way, I do think, you know, this is where it is great being in DC, because you are surrounded by people who are who do have this sort of forensic analysis of what the Russians are up to. If the plan was very much Georgia 2008, and this whole thing you know, looks like a, you know, really from the 2008 playbook, then by calling the Russians out early, by, you know, even getting this level of commonality that we have now, I mean, it's, it's, it is that then DC has played this very well because then um, they've managed to create, compare this to 2008. I mean, the, or 2014, there's incomparably more unity. We don't know how deep it goes, maybe, but, but, but in that sense, they've done a really, really good job. And if this isn't Putin has gone mad and he just doesn't care anymore, but he is probing, then actually he's, he's been played quite well. And by the way, we don't quite know. Today's Saturday or Sunday. Yeah, we still don't quite know what he's up to in, in the DNR. Um, these clinic, so far, we see them mobilizing the, the local forces and sort of dragging the poor people of the DNR into a fight. Um, and maybe, you know, Russian tanks will have to come and sort of help them to stop genocide there. But whether he's going to do the sack of Kiev, which which would have been a bit like sort of the, the raid on Belisi in 2008, whether that's been made more difficult, I think that is actually a huge credit then to the DC ties we've been maligning so much. But, you know, they, they do understand some things as well. Yeah, and look, I mean, it, it could all be part of this kind of strategic messaging game. I mean, when the president of the United States gets up and says, I believe... Um, well, actually not I believe, but we have intelligence that says that an invasion is underway and that Kiev will be attacked. Well, perhaps you have intelligence that suggests an invasion is underway, but perhaps that last bit is just your way of kind of trying to get the better of Putin or putting it out there that, you know, he's, he is a madman who wants to take over a European capital. And so we have to sort of rally the troops and, and, and do all the rest. I mean, look, this is such a game of speculation, because as you say, we don't know. We don't know actually what's being calculated inside the presidential administration in Moscow. We don't know what the, the Siloviki are, are saying between and amongst themselves or what Putin himself is. I mean, like, you know, part of this whole thing is he's kind of like in this Howard Hughes zone of COVID isolation, the ridiculously long tables, which I mean, fine, if that's your version of social distancing, you know, you, you must take a PCR test. There was reporting in RFERL that um, his inner circle have to provide stool samples <laughs> before he can, he can meet with them. And, and again, this could all be part of the game as well. You know, ooh, we mustn't, you know, upset the, the sort of the, the the sick man of Moscow who's kind of cogitating and wondering what his plans to take over the world tomorrow are going to be. You know, we we must all like play by his um, his medical playbook or whatever. I mean, this it just makes him look more unstable. It makes him look more mercurial and narcissistic, and uh, that could also be part of the game being played on the Russian side. Yeah. 
Yeah, absolutely. could be part of a game. I just want to get back a little bit to the forensics of what's going to happen here. It's important to say again that we are recording this on the Sunday evening. It, it is, it's around dinner time for me in Kiev. It's about eight o'clock. It is Sunday, February 20th, the day that the uh, Olympic Games are concluded. It is the day that the, the Belarus war games and maneuvers were supposed to end, but were extended. It is the day before the 21st, which is the eighth anniversary of the Maidan. It is three days before Fatherland Day or whatever it is they call now. So we're, we're in this moment where we're recording this on the exact day when all the intelligence agencies and everybody was promising that something would happen on any one of these anniversaries. This is the day that everything was supposed to happen. If our analysis is off by, by a day, it's because you can, you can timestamp it to this moment. So we do not have any kind of resolution to what exactly happens if he only has plausible deniability in the Donbass. If he moves tanks in and it's more of this thing about LNR, DNR, and I don't even really know why you would do that because it really doesn't advance getting rid of Minsk or uh, getting uh, uh, domination or getting uh, Zelensky and the, the cabinet to kneel. I just don't understand why they would do that. But if they only do that, if they only nuke Minsk too and take a bigger chunk of Donetsk and Lugansk provinces, which they do not have totally, what for? I mean, that, that doesn't really bring forth any kind of further resolution of, of his grievances. It doesn't, it doesn't break the state. It doesn't break NATO. It doesn't bring any kind of uh, anything forward. I just don't see why that's enough. But if that's all he does and we allow him that, and by we, I mean the United States presidential administration, if we allow him that as a kind of honorable, safe-facing measure and a way to step out of this ratcheting up effect, which you know we very well may have locked him into a position he doesn't want to be in. He, he may be bluffing well past the time he was willing to leave the table. But if, if we do not have a understanding of what it is the red lines are, for very particular movements of the Donbass, you're going to get them. Let me put to you another scenario here, which is interesting. And it kind of, it picks up on what Peter was saying about the failure to do proper sociology of the residents of the LNR DNR. So when I was in Kyiv earlier this month, which now feels like a year ago, but whatever, one of the things that Ukrainian officials and even the man in the street will kind of quietly tell you, but either off the record, or I know this is kind of blasphemous, but is actually, you know, in a way, let them go. Yes. Having these territories occupied is great for us because these are the fifth columnists that we don't want in our political system. Right. Uh, you got like over upwards of two million residents of Donbass, historically the, one of the most pro-Russian constituencies in the country. Putin wants Minsk to re-implement or implement it at all because these are these become voters. Right. And so these guys are going to send new deputies to the Rada. I mean, whatever your back of the envelope calculation of how many you know pro-Russian deputies would be in the Rada now. But if we were to take the events of the last several months, this real revulsion on the part of people living in, in the LNR, DNR territories about being used as pawns or you know, sort of puppets in some staged managed pretext for war. I mean, the, the kind of dripping contempt they have, they don't want to leave their homes, they're not, they don't want to be sent to Rostov, they don't want to be put on 17-hour bus rides and then train rides after that. In a way, if Putin is playing his hand badly here and creating, using this territory for his own kind of military machinations, these people will turn on their temporary occupying masters. These people are going to be pissed off. 
And in, and in a way, they might be turned into the kind of you know, patriotic Ukrainians that essentially the rest of the country has been turned into already. So he might not get the political solution he's seeking through military means at this point. Or is that too, I don't know, is that is that too kind of optimistic? No, that's a, that's a great argument. I mean, I don't think that you're going to turn the uh, the people left of the Donbass into patriots of Ukraine. Although there certainly are people there, and I do feel bad for them, who are quietly patriotic and who are stuck there, who are very old, or have mobility issues, who don't have any other property or any savings, or their entire uh, liquidity or net worth is tied down in a, in a worthless little apartment that's worth eight thousand dollars that that you, you can't sell anymore, you can't go anywhere. You know, why why leave the center of Lugansk and Donetsk, which is more or less unharmed, and go somewhere else where you have nothing to do. Lots of people are there for for all sorts of reasons because they can't leave. But everyone who wanted to leave left, everyone who's worthy of being in the upper middle class professions is in living now in Odessa or Kiev or Kharkiv. The young people with any kind of ambitions have left. You've, you've drained these regions that are under occupation of their cultural capital and of their of their social capital. All the best people in the middle class, the Ukrainian patriots, the forward-looking people are living somewhere else. You don't really have much to work with in, in terms of restructuring these, these places to realign for the future. That's one thing. Another thing is you're, you're, not, you're just not going to get the majority of those people to be pro-Ukrainian, no matter how badly the Russians treat them. They know very well their political football for other people. They know very well that their turn at running Ukraine is over. And this war actually has had the unforeseen consequence of completely knocking the the east of the country out of the political yeah. game. The Donbass used to, used to take turns occupying the presidential administration. Between the east and the west, they would take turns running the country. It was always Donbass or representatives of the Donbass who were running the country. And, and, and having like 50% of the MPs, they're out of the game now. They're oligarchs, they're MPs, everybody. They're, they're out of the game. Right. The Donbass no longer has any kind of political uh, function in, in Kiev. And the other thing you have to remember is that having given out 600,000 passports, and I'm actually going to write something about this. Don't steal my idea, anybody. Having given out 600,000 Russian passports, those are people that... And any kind of implementation of Minsk, why would you, if you're the Ukrainians, bring them into the interior ministry with security clearances and stuff? You know, who are, who are even going to allow to run for city council yeah. jobs, let alone parliamentary jobs? You know, you're not allowed to have dual nationality under Ukrainian constitution. So, OK, let's revise or contradict our previous Please. analysis, which said that Putin has had this un, uninterrupted spate of tactical or strategic successes in the last five years. One big failure has been he needed to stop Ukraine's integration with the West. He needed to stop its evolution as a truly European country. He failed. And so this is his kind of last recourse to, to do that. He has to invade. He has to take it over militarily because politically, culturally, socially, it's lost to him. Peter, is that, did you say that's a fair pricey of his, of the Russian Ukraine policy at the moment? Wouldn't he rather have oligarchs and, you know, influence peddlers and, and deputies in the Rada and indeed presidents and prime ministers doing his bidding for him without having to go to this messy expense? I mean, I assume so. And, and, and there are still so many ways that, that and in that sense, you know, it's, it's been sort of a series of, of, of big miscalculations. And there are much larger dynamics at work, much older dynamics at work. Um, which which afflicts empires and their grasp on the periphery, and this isn't really about you know even about Putin. This is just something much bigger and more systemic. And I'll end on this. I'm afraid I've got to run. I've actually got an interview that I, I told 
I give a Ukrainian magazine that started 10 minutes ago. So, you know, a lot of people, again, this is part of the speculation and, and which is so tiresome because it doesn't really take you anywhere, but like, has Putin lost it? Essentially, I mean, there was a piece in The Economist yesterday essentially saying Putin's lost it, you know, et cetera, et cetera. A lot of people think that, that, that he's not a, a, a rash, he's not the, the rational actor that he used to be. He's a different kind of actor. Sometimes, you know, that speculation is also related to uh, Putin's sense of his own mortality. People talk about how weird he sits and how few people can come near him and that maybe he has Parkinson's and goes on and on and on in the spec- speculative whirly gig. And, and it's almost, you know, if it is that, then he's trying to, you know, his way to kind of deal with death becomes trying to deny the death of the end of the Russian Empire project, which is happening on his watch in so many ways. There's a battle against death and inevitability. Russia remains a death cult, you know, it still has a, you know, a corpse on Red Square. Um, it because still, it's still sort of a historically a world leader in, 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 in sort of self-sabotage and suicide in many ways. I mean, the gulag is a sort of a, an act of self-harm. And, you know, and Ukraine stands for life. Ukraine wants to live. You go there and people want to live. They want to survive. And even people in DNR want to live and survive. It's not about being pro or anti-Ukrainian. It's about wanting to live. This is sort of like the death cult in action. I mean, the, the, best, the best metaphor for, for the Kremlin and Russian power is Solzhenitsyn's, the idea of a cancer ward. And, and it feels like a cancer ward. And, and maybe we should listen to the people in Moscow who, who feel that, you know, the sentient ones in Moscow feel, no, no, this is, these are death spasms. The problem is these death spasms can cause a lot of problems for, for other people and they can drag others down with them. But, but there is something much more fundamental going on and, and something older and more, and more historical. Obviously, there's so much more to discuss here, and uh, I want to have both of you back soon things develop. You've been listening to Foreign Office. I'm Michael Weiss. My guests this week, or today, because we're going to do more episodes this week, were uh, Peter Pomerantsev and Vladislav Davidson, who is in Kyiv now. Thanks for joining us, and we will see you next time. 